0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to Matthew chapter 4 this morning. Matthew chapter 4. We've spent the last three weeks dealing with the baptism. In chapter 3, his public anointing as prophet, priest, and king. We will move on this morning to examine chapter 4 and the aspects of his temptation. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to assure that we are filled with the Spirit and equipped to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the opportunity we have to assemble together for the freedom that we enjoy in this nation to do so. And we ask now that distractions will be set aside. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All righty. Oh, I was supposed to also announce the ladies' room. Conditions are rather sparse in there this morning and this evening, and uh, will probably be even worse on Sunday. But when the whole project's complete, it's really going to be uh, a good deal in there. So, just to let you know, there is also a full bathroom now back in the nursery. You don't have that little kitty commode anymore, and uh, and that. So anyway, that's. Don't know why we got that on tape, but I was supposed to announce that this morning too. All right, Matthew chapter four. You know, there are certain elements of the life of Christ and this is the second event in the section that is titled Beginning of Jesus' Ministry. So you can title this morning's lesson, Jesus Tempted. Um, There are certain events that I've kind of looked at and considered down the road that, well, that'll go pretty quick or, well, that'll be pretty short. And then sometimes I look at the same event and I my, my head spins, and I say, "Wait a minute! That could take months." <laughs> and I think this is one of those. I think on a, on a basic level, you can examine these temptations, and and glean some principles for application. You can glean some uh, encouragements and some some doctrines, and 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 on a very simple basis, and then be done with it. Move on to the next chapter, or you can spend the next 20 years focusing on all three of these temptations. And these are the three that are recorded. There were more than these three, but these are the three that are recorded. And go into the Deuteronomy quotations behind them and really develop out uh, some extensive, extensive principles for every area of life, not just these three uh, areas of application. So it will be interesting to see um, how uh, what the Lord does with it and how we teach this here today. We're going to be primarily in Matthew. We will look at Mark and Luke. Uh, we will see all three of the parallel passages because the description of the, uh, the the beginning of the incident is different in all three. Recorded in three gospels and each of the three has a separate account for what began this whole process. So we will examine those as well. Point one. After his baptism, Jesus Christ followed the Holy Spirit's leading. After his baptism, Jesus Christ followed the Holy Spirit's leading. And this applies not only to the baptism, but beginning with the baptism and continuing every step of the way to the cross and and beyond. Jesus Christ followed the Holy Spirit's leading. He did not come to do His own will, but to do that of the Father, and it, the empowerment for doing the Father's will comes through the Holy Spirit. This is a principle for you and I that is true today. If we want to follow the will of the Father, we're going to do so by the filling and control and leading of God the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit's purpose to allow Jesus to be tempted by the devil. And we have the purpose clause in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The infinitive that is expressed here, to be tempted, in the English language, communicates a purpose clause. Anything that you're doing uh, for something or to something that expresses purpose clause, like we have here in the English, to be tempted. This demonstrates not the devil's purpose, but God's purpose. Do I need to say that again? This demonstrates not the devil's purpose, but God's purpose. Does the devil have a purpose? Obviously. He has a purpose, a plan, a design. It won't work, and he's rather insane for trying it, but it is his purpose, his plan, and design to try to get the Christ to stumble. Likewise, it's his purpose and plan and design to get you and I to stumble when he tempts us. The tempter is there for our downfall, and his design is always to trip us up, to get us to get our eyes off of Christ, to get to get us to volitionally take off our armor. (laughs) You know, he can't come and take off our armor, but if he can cause us to stumble, then he will allow us to volitionally take it off ourselves, and then, you know, it's like pouring ketchup all over ourselves and making us nice and tasty for that roaring lion who's seeking to devour. So as we simply introduce this and take a look at verse 1, we recognize that this is the purpose clause. The main verb is led, that he was led. And we're going to study the vocabulary on this here in a moment. The main verb is led, and the primary activity is being done by the Holy Spirit. It's a passive voice. Jesus was led. He wasn't doing the leading. The Holy Spirit was doing the leading, and Jesus was receiving the activity of the verb. That is, in the passive voice, he was being acted upon. So the primary agent in verse 1 is the Holy Spirit. The primary verb is led. And the purpose clause, to be tempted... And indicates not the devil's purpose, but God's purpose, and that is so important for us to figure out. And we could illustrate this. We could go to the Book of Job. We could find places, for instance, when Job is being tested by Satan. Uh, we can go to the thorn in the flesh in Second Corinthians and talk about Paul and talk about the uh, the angel of Satan that was sent to buffet him. All the things there. Whatever Satan's design is, you and I can take comfort in the fact that God has a purpose in it as well or it wouldn't be happening. <laughs> so whatever he directs is according to his purpose, and whatever he permits is according to his purpose. And so whether uh, I'm going through uh, uh, testing in, in directive will or I'm going through undeserved suffering through permissive will, in in reality, for, for you and I in our mental attitude, it makes no difference whatsoever because he's either directing it or he's permitting it, and in both cases, it's the Father's purpose that's being accomplished. So we can take great comfort from that. Now, to be tempted by the devil, introduced to us here in verse 1, ha, diabolos, number twelve twenty-eight, And diabolos comes from the verb diabalo, D-I-A-B-A-L-L-O, and it is the slanderer. He is the slanderer. We get this idea in terms of uh, cartoon imagery <laughs> that the devil is this little red guy uh, with horns and a pitchfork and a long tail. And he sits on your shoulder and he's whispering, you know, do this, do that, you know, do this sin. And we we kind of, I don't know why we're stuck with this little cartoon image of the devil that, now don't get me wrong, there is a, such a thing as demonic temptation and there are indeed whisperings into the ear and into the soul. But, There is an aspect of temptation that actually that imagery rather touches upon. But the primary title is not, we will see the title tempter, but the title here, Diabolos, is the slanderer. And I hope that every single one of us will keep in our frame of reference that the slander, where does the slander take place? Where does the accuser function? The accusations are levied in heaven that he stands and accuses the brethren night and day that the battle that we fight is not against flesh and blood and, in many respects, is not even here on this earth because much of the sphere of our spiritual activities in the heavenly place is in Christ. That's where we worship. That's where we pray. That's where we serve. We are seated at the right hand of Christ who is seated at the right hand of the Father. We worship and our priesthood takes place in the Holy of Holies. So... I'm hoping that this study and other studies will help to broaden our, our horizons in thinking that we're not all wrapped up at 7500 Woodrow Avenue, all right? We're not all caught up in the physical geography of this world, uh, of this cosmos here, but actually the battle, the battlefield's in the soul, but the conflict is at the throne of grace because that's where our advocate is, that's where our accuser is. He is the slanderer, and that slander takes place at the throne of grace. So we'll see some of those things as well. If you need visual imagery of this, anybody guess where I'm going? Job 1 and 2 is a good place to go with this, but I would also uh, bring to your attention Zechariah chapter 3. Alright, if you just want to find an easy to spot passage and a wonderful illustration, Zechariah chapter 3. Then he showed me. Am I flipping too fast? Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan at his right hand to accuse him. Now, did Joshua the high priest was he was he uh, somehow raptured? Was he somehow uh, by present? He was on earth and in heaven. Why is this seen in heaven when Joshua is ministering on earth? Because where is spiritual ministry take place? All right? Standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? In other words, Joshua was a born-again believer. Hands off. I defend him. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel... He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, "Remove the filthy garments from him." Again, he said to him, "See, I have taken your iniquity away, and you will be, and and you, I'm sorry, I will take your iniquity from you, and will clothe you with festal robes." Then I said, "Let them put a clean turban on his head." See, Zechariah gets to speak up here, and he has a he has a wardrobe suggestion that he's making. All right. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, while the angel of the Lord was standing by and the angel of the lord astonished uh, admonished joshua saying thus says the lord of hosts if you will walk in my ways and if you will perform my service then you will also govern my house and also have charge of my courts and i will grant you free access among those who are standing here all right and there's a whole lot of teaching that goes into the book of Jeremiah, Zechariah, and specifically in that chapter there. But I just wanted to bring to your attention the aspect of standing before the Lord. Alright? Now, that was, the passage we just read was in an Old Testament context with reference to a high priest under the Levitical priesthood, and so there's, some of it doesn't directly pertain to the church, but in a lot of ways the church is even more intimate. Because we are in Christ. Christ is at the right hand of the Father, and we're at the right hand of Christ. So there's a lot of uh, concepts there that we want to understand in terms of where we are, how we serve, how we function, and what the adversary is all about. In any event, side trip over, we can return back now to Matthew chapter 4. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the slanderer. Ha, Diabolos. Some point A... We're going to look at all three of these accounts. Let's just simply start with Matthew 4:1. So under subpoint A, you can write Matthew 4:1. We have an aorist passive indicative of anago, A N A G O. In Matthew 4:1. As I say, all three of the uh, synoptic gospels cover this event. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this event, and they all describe it in different terms for the Compelling for the leading for the uh, event that took Christ into the temptation circumstances. In Matthew four one, it is an aorist passive indicative of anago a n a g o. Now ago by itself means to lead or to bring. By itself, it means to lead or to bring. In fact, we have that term in Luke. Luke will use the term Ago, and we'll see that in a moment. But the compound on Ago, Ana is a prefix that often means again, or it means up. And in this case, we have up, led up into the wilderness. The, the hill country of Judah, the wilderness region around Jerusalem was an elevated region to lead up. In some cases the aspect of up carries with it a uh, a handing over, which we're going to see at the end of Jesus Christ's ministry when he is delivered, not just delivered, but delivered up. And so in the sense of being uh, the, the upward preposition and the upward prefix on this verb is used in a lot of ways like we would use the, uh, in English, we would use the preposition over. I'm going to give somebody over. Um, something is is uh, is is handed over or given over, or we use that that preposition over in the sense that um, I'm relinquishing control, I'm relinquishing uh, uh, authority, I'm I'm handing over. Uh, say I'm I'm quitting the church, I'm going to hand my pulpit over to somebody. See, we use the word over for. Um, a relinquishment of of control of handing over well a lot of ways here in the new testament the the concept of Anna, the the concept of up is used rather than over jesus christ is handed up he is delivered up he is offered up and uh in this case he is led up into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil and there is an aspect of of uh in the Father's will now, of Jesus Christ, having been anointed, the prophet, priest, and king, beginning his earthly ministry, and then giving him, for a season, to the devil, for the testing process. Now, the devil has his purpose, but the Father has his purpose. And we'll see that here in this, uh, in this context. Alright, the Mark record. So, point B, Mark one twelve. Mark one twelve uses an active voice rather than a passive voice, but it changes the the uh, subject or keeps the subject as the Holy Spirit. Let's just glance over to Mark one twelve, where we find the present active indicative of ekballo e k b a l l o. Mark one twelve. Mark, by the way, is a no fooling around, don't waste my time kind of author. <laughs> he writes an event and moves on to the next. And so you'll notice the whole temptation event in Mark is covered in verses 12 and 13. And he doesn't waste his time to spell out the three uh, temptations and the three responses and the dialogue back and forth or any of that. Mark is a no nonsense, no fooling around, get to the action and move on to the next item kind of author. And so we see that here. Um, In verse 12, immediately, that Greek euthus, it's a term that Mark loves to use. You find, I think it's like three dozen uses of of immediately, all sprinkled throughout 16 chapters of Mark. Immediately, the uh, spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. That's it. (laughs) Mark moves on to the next subject in verse 14. All right, back to John the Baptist and the arrest and different things. All right, get a little sense for a little flavor for the gospel of Mark there. But the verb that's utilized in verse 12, you'll notice immediately the spirit, the subject of the sentence, impelled him. Present active imperative of ekballo. Now, ballo is to throw, like you throw a ball. And ballo is to throw, but ekbalo is to throw out. And usually when we find this word in the New Testament, what's going on is Jesus Christ is driving demons out of somebody. <laughs> it's the word to cast out, like to cast out a demon, or to drive out money changers from the temple, or uh, a rather violent confrontational passage such as that. Very common word. And for it to be used here in the sense that, um, that Christ was driven, Christ was compelled... That the Holy Spirit, the leading of the Holy Spirit, which we saw in Matthew was a leading up and, you know, a handing off to Satan. Here we find it as a compelling, a driving out. Christ knew that this was work assignment number one after the baptism. This was the first order of business was to, with his armor on, was to engage in this angelic conflict battle. So he could start calling his disciples and begin his teaching ministry. All right. And so the uh, the idea of uh, of compulsion of knowing that this is what the father has for me to do and the sense that I'm going to get it done that's what Jesus Christ had again that's a present active indicative of ekballo ekballo number 1540 full of the holy spirit returned from the jordan and was led around by the spirit in the wilderness okay again it's a passive voice because the Subject of the verb is actually receiving the activity. Jesus Christ is being led, in this case being led around. And uh, the instrument of that leading is, is phrased here by the Spirit. In Luke 4 1, this is now subpoint C, Luke 4 1, we have an imperfect, not an aorist, an imperfect passive indicative. An imperfect passive indicative of Ago, A G O. This is the uncompounded form. Ago. Don't confuse it with anago, which we saw in Matthew. Ago, A-G-O, number 71. To lead, to guide, to take with one. The idea of ago is not, not leading the way and having somebody follow you. And it's not standing behind and driving them forward see both of which we find in scripture by the way sheep are led by following uh cattle are driven by being pushed from behind but ago is is side by side that is leading by it is you can think of the word bring if you bring something with you you walked into this room and you brought a bible or you brought a notebook or you brought a pen or whatever you brought with you You brought a You know, a deck of cards, you can play solitaire when the message gets boring, or whatever you brought with you. You came in here and you brought something or somebody, okay? And so it is leadership in accompaniment. It is leading by bringing. In the imperfect tense, we have described here continuous action in past time. Continuous action in past time. We often draw out the aorist as a dot. Point in time. It happened. Usually past, because we're looking at it after it's done. Sometimes present. All right? Even conceivably, an aorist could be future if you're just simply looking at a point. A point in time. Sometimes I've heard pastors say a point in time, divorced from time. It's just an event. There it is. All right? A uh, present. This is aorist. A present tense is continuous action in present time and the imperfect such as we have here in Luke is the continuous action in past time continuous action in past time okay which is kind of awkward ring across in english usually as a past participle or something like that i can say i ate breakfast Erist. I was eating, and that gives more of the duration involved. Uh, This morning, I was eating breakfast when the phone rang, see. And so we're describing the continuous action in past time. It's not just the event of eating breakfast, but the time that was going by while something else happened, see. That's what we have here in Luke. That he was being led. He was being led in the imperfect tense. And we understand that, that the Holy Spirit didn't just say, get out there into the wilderness and then leave him alone. <laughs> but the Holy Spirit actually brought him out into the wilderness, accompanied him, brought him, leading him while he was, uh, you know, taking him out there and stayed with him on day one, on day two, on day three, and of course the nights in between, for the 40 days and for the 40 nights, for all of the temptation events, not just these three, but it was a continual leading, see. And um, I think when we do studies such as is coming up in the basic doctrinal studies on the will of God, uh how do i know the will of god and and believers get all convinced because they say well the the i was led by the spirit to do such and such you know god laid it on my heart to do such and such see and they get this idea that well okay i'm led and he launched me forth and now i'm here and now i'm saying well what now <laughs> okay and what we're hopefully learning here and by the way, this, I think, is what uh, Robert uh, Rice is learning in Portland. That the father doesn't just launch you forth and say, okay, go to Portland. And then you get here and you're left wondering, well, all right. I'm here, Lord. Now what? <laughs> okay. Because if, uh, if you get to this and you find there's no more leading going on, what might you suspect? <laughs> was, was that really leading or was that a temptation and my uh, carnality wanted it to be so and I just in my human mind said oh God's opening a door all right if he's leading you here then he's leading you here and he's leading you here and he's leading you here if you're in the will of God you will be in the will of God does that make sense I mean, is that redundant to say if you're in the will of God, you'll be in the will of God? That leading will be there in terms of divine guidance. Scripture says, do not be foolish, but understand, continuously, continuously understand what the will of the Lord is. The will of God should be a continual aspect of our christian walk and we'll see that under philomatology when we get to that point in basic doctrinal studies so luke helps to give us the imperfect tense to show us that not only was the the, the catapult that launched him out there in the wilderness that was the will of god but the whole process along the way that the holy spirit accompanied him led him daily moment by moment and uh and uh for this period of time and you'll notice still in luke here uh, I like the way they did, and was led around, and was led around by the the Spirit in the wilderness. And that shows us the the aspect of of, uh, of of the of the walk, and that's how it is. For forty days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. It's also stated that way in Matthew, and I'll return back to the Matthew account now. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And that's point two. Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights before becoming hungry. The hunger did not begin until day 41, we would say. He fasted. Fasting, by the way, I've been asked this occasionally here and there. Uh, People say, oh, I see a lot of fasting in the Old Testament. Is there fasting in the New Testament? Yes, there is. (laughs) And there is instruction on it. The Lord gave instruction on it in Matthew as far as how to fast with the right mental attitude as unto the Lord, uh, not to be observed by men, but in secret. And your father who sees in secret repays and principles there. As a matter of fact, uh, the New Testament gives a lot of teaching on fasting and it's not simply Food, or only food, but husbands and wives can fast, as it were, in marital relations under the the same concept. Point two, Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights before becoming hungry. His intense spiritual focus produced an unawareness of his physical lack of food. His intense spiritual focus produced an unawareness of his physical lack of food. In other words, it says he fasted 40 days and 40 nights. He then became hungry. You don't think he was hungry on day 20? You know, halfway through? Would you be hungry if you hadn't eaten in 20 days? Okay. <laughs> Man, I get, I get hungry by lunch, you know. If I had a small breakfast or skipped breakfast. And uh, there's some interesting things, um, and it's remarkable. Even unbelievers, even pagan religions, it's, it's fascinating what um, the Hindus, for example, can accomplish in their meditations. What the Buddhists can accomplish in, with, with, uh, with, with yoga and with body um uh, 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 denials and in the, in the things there. and Scripture warns us about uh, these false religions that promote uh, bodily denials and promote uh, abstaining from foods and promote a whole lot of things. And, and it really gets evil very quickly. I'm, I'm, I don't want to leave the wrong impression with this. What I'm trying to illustrate, though, is that even these false religions have identified the fact that the human body is capable of some amazing things under Spiritual influences. So stop and consider what the body is capable of under holy spiritual influences. <laughs> that is, the influence of the Holy Spirit, which is sovereign, omnipotent, empowering. And uh, the circumstances described here, not just here, but throughout the New Testament, the things the apostles went through, the things that, that the early church went through in their martyrdoms and their persecutions and so forth. Uh, reading the account of uh, of uh, Tertullian the other day and how he was was it Tertullian no Polycarp when he was martyred in the uh, second century and he's in his late 80s and he's they got him tied to the stake and they're they're willing to to let him not be martyred not be put to death if he simply recants and denies the name of Jesus Christ and I, and I love I'm not going to quote this perfectly here this morning but words to the effect of he said that the Lord's been faithful to me for all eighty-six of these years. Why? Why would I start denying Him now? <laughs> you know, and so they set the thing on fire, but He wouldn't burn. <laughs> and He was singing the Psalms, and He wasn't burning. And they had to come along and stick a knife in Him and uh, try to kill Him that way. And the blood poured out and quenched the fire. And <laughs> you know, what uh, what are these what are these unbelievers going to do, as it were? So. The uh, interesting thing here in terms of the interaction between the physical and the spiritual and why it is that in our humanity we we highlight the physical and we exalt the physical and we think about, you know, most prayer meetings center on health needs, all right? Even the Bible Church biblical prayer meetings, um, you know, seek ye first the kingdom of God. And all these things shall be added unto you. We're going to see that passage coming up when Christ resists the temptation. So there's a concept there. Point three. The tempter. The tempter made a number of offers, three of which are recorded in Scripture. And the Lord answered all three with Deuteronomy quotations. The tempter made a number of offers, three of which are recorded in Scripture. And the Lord answered all three with Deuteronomy quotations. I'll give you a moment to write that down. Point three. The tempter. In the Greek it's ha-perodzon. And I'll give you vocabulary on that. The tempter. Ha-perodzon. Made a number of offers. Three of which are recorded in Scripture. And the Lord answered all three with Deuteronomy quotations. Deuteronomy eight three Deuteronomy six sixteen Deuteronomy six thirteen and ten twenty All right In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1, he's called ha-diabolos, the slanderer. In Matthew 4 and verse 3, he's called ha Peradzon the tempter. Perazon is a perfect active participle from perazo, the verb which means to tempt, to ensnare. And this is how it appears as a participle. If you just drop that last N, P-E-I-R-A-Z-O, that's your verb. P-E-I-R-A-Z-O is your verb. Number 3985. Perazo means to test, to tempt, the objective of which is always downfall. So by putting the word the in front of it and adding the N on the end of it, we just turned perazo into a Perfect active participle, masculine singular nominative, the tempter. Alright? We put the, ha is the, the definite article ha is the, and then we added, there's the, and then we added an N on the end of it, the, the Greek letter nu, and we turned the verb, peradzo into a present active participle, ha, peradzone. Alright? Or peyrazon. Same thing in English, you know, farm is a verb. Somebody who farms is a farmer. All right. Pastor. That's a weird one. Let me throw that one out. That's a, that's a noun and a verb. And a <laughs> All right. Uh, a bunch of things. Fish, fisherman, you know, fish, fisher, farm, farmer. You can probably, I'm scraping here. You'll do better examples yourself. <laughs> but find a verb and somebody who does that verb. All right. Present active participle carries with it the same idea. That the present tense carries, continuous action in present time. When is he not tempting? <laughs> he's always tempting. That's his continuous action. That's his nonstop 24-7 activity. And he's gotten good at it. You know, if you do something all day, every day, for the next year, you get pretty good at it. All day, every day, for the next 20 years. How about all day, every day, for the last 6,000 years? You think he's an amateur at this temptation stuff? He's been doing it ever since Eve. All right? He knows what buttons to push. He's, seen, uh, he's been watching you a long time. And he's seen sinners just like you. He knows all the different uh, flavors of sin nature and where the different weaknesses are and where the different trends are and, and uh, what kind of sin nature is susceptible to what kind of temptation and all the rest. Present active participle of Peradzo. Now, there's two terms, and I won't go into this this morning, but one of the most effective studies you can ever do is to work out a word study between Peradzo and Dokimazo. You've already seen Peradzo. The other one is Dokimazo. That's D O K I M A Z O. Those are the two that you want to do in tandem. You want to do those studies together because this is to test or to tempt looking for our fall and this is to test looking for our approval. Very important you gain these distinctions because God will never do this. He will never pay rodzo you. In fact, the book of James says that he cannot. He cannot be tempted, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But he will test you all day, every day. (laughs) He's constantly testing us. The Christian way of life is a series of tests. Preparing us for the next step. Preparing us for the next step. And the reason why God allows Satan to pay rodzo is so that he can apply that for his own Remember, whose purpose was it that drove Christ into the wilderness? It was the Father's purpose. The Holy Spirit's purpose to send him into the wilderness. Now, the Satan was there to tempt him, but the Father allowed it for his approval. Likewise with Job. Satan was trying to bring about Job's fall. He said, he will surely curse you to his face. Remember? Satan said that if you, if you afflict Job, he will curse you to your face. Satan was intending to pay rodzo Job, and Satan did pay rodzo Job. But God was allowing that to dokimazo Job. And the whole idea of dokimazo is to, uh, to test for approval, to demonstrate that it is acceptable, the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. All right? This is how we prove the will of God. Dokimazo, Romans 12:2. So, if you ever want to do some fruitful studies, those are them. And we're going to see those, again, coming up in basic doctrinal studies, particularly on the will of God. Now, three of these are mentioned in Scripture. Now, you'll notice, um, the tempter came and said to him, and goes on into the, the narrative of verse uh, uh, in Matthew. But when we, when we look at Mark, we look at Luke, we understand that the process was much more involved than this. You know, how long did it take for the devil to phrase these three questions and for Christ to verbalize his three answers? You know, we can read the whole passage here in, in just a few seconds. It doesn't take even a minute to read all three questions and all three answers. But the process was much longer than that. And Mark, we recognize in his no fooling around account, verse 13, He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. Indicating that those temptations didn't just start on day 41, but the entire time was temptation after temptation after temptation after temptation. Forty days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. Ministering angels. I think sometimes we haven't had as clear a teaching on that as we need. What does our guardian angel do anyway? And is a guardian angel the same as a ministering angel? And um, how does that work? Luke chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Being tempted. Continuous action, passive voice, throughout the duration of those forty days, and he ate nothing during those days. And when he had ended, when they had ended, he became hungry. See, sometimes um, skeptics will say, will look at the gospel account and say, "Well, Jesus wasn't tempted in this." because they don't see it written in the gospels anywhere they say well he was never married he wasn't tempted with with uh, adultery for example he wasn't tempted because they don't have it's not spelled out and yet these passages say for 40 days he was tempted in all kinds of things and hebrews says he was tempted in all things even as we are and yet without sin so you name it he was tempted in it as you and i are and yet as yet without sin see So the three that we have recorded are not the only three. He was tempted in everything imaginable, including things that maybe a skeptic would say, oh, he didn't face this. You better believe he did. He faced it all. That's why he can intercede for everything. All right, if you want scripture on that, uh, the last verse of chapter 2, and then uh, in chapter 4, probably about verse 15 in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews, the last verse of chapter two. Is there an abbreviation for last verse? <laughs> you know, Hebrews two colon. Well, it's verse eighteen. All right. If I turn there, I find out it's verse eighteen. Seems like we ought to have an, an abbreviation for last verse of a chapter. Hebrews two L or something for. <laughs> All right, Hebrews two L happens to be verse 18 since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted he knows how to intercede he knows what a believer faces when he faces a particular temptation because he faced it then over in chapter 15 verse uh, chapter 4 verse 15 we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, and yet without sin. So he can intercede for us. He knows what we're faced with because he faced it. And he can bear our burdens. He can pray for us. He can intercede on our behalf. See, I can, um, as a pastor or a shepherd or just a believer coming alongside a fellow believer, uh, I have limitations. I can pray for him. I can love them, but there's a lot I haven't done, <laughs> you know. I haven't been in certain shoes, see. How do I come alongside a, 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 an unwed mother, for example, a young girl in her pregnancy? Well, I've never been an unwed mother, you know, how about that? I've never been a, a, a wed mother. I've never been pregnant, married or otherwise. But I can come alongside and I can intercede And I can pray. And we have a Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who's faced every temptation, who had victory in every temptation, who knows every test of human experience. See? Now, he hadn't been pregnant either. But he's been tested in the the things of fornication. And he can come alongside and he can intercede. All right. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, and yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence. Why can we draw near with confidence? Because we are at the right hand of Christ. Christ is at the right hand of the Father, and we have every business being at that throne of grace. What a delight. We may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. All right, so dealing with these temptations now, Subpoint A. Satan's first recorded temptation acknowledged Jesus as the Son of God. Satan's first recorded temptation acknowledged Jesus as the Son of God. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 3. The tempter came and said to him, If, and you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Command that these stones become bread. The first recorded temptation. Acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God. See, we say if, and to us English speakers, if is kind of up in the air. Right? Maybe you are, maybe you aren't. But if you are, do this. Okay? In the Greek, there's no such uh, ambiguity there because if it's up in the air, the language tells us it's up in the air. It tells us that it's potential. tells us that it's conditional. But if it's certain, the, the syntax of the passage tells us that as well. That's what we have here. All right? We have four different classifications of if. If you're not familiar with that in the Greek context or the Greek syntax here in the New Testament, this is first class condition. Number one, assume to be true. We understand that you are the Son of God. We're not guessing. We're not leaving it up to you to prove it. We know it to be true. All right? First class condition of if. If and it's true. Are you familiar with these? Do I need to review them? Do you know what I'm talking about? Maybe not. If. First class number one is if and it is true. That's what we have here. Okay, These are unmistakable. You can spot these by just looking at the, at the Greek sentence and spotting it. All right? And how they, uh, the words they use and how they use them. All right? And so sometimes rather than if, we can render this since. Since. Since you are the Son of God. Because we know it's true. Since you are the Word of God, the, the Son of God. Command that these stones become bread, and command isn't isn't conditional it's it's or, or even potential it's it's a command do it you have the authority to do it, so do it second class condition if and it's not true it is false, and this uh, begins with an if and then usually is followed not always but usually is followed with a uh, a would've, should've, or could've. A would've, a should've, or a could've. Don't we have enough of those in life? <laughs> if only I would've. Oh, I should've. Man, I wish I could've. You know? You got any of those in your life? We all do. We've got a thousand of them. It's called Life. You know, and we, the Father has us go one day at a time and we can't go back and redo something yesterday. Whatever we did, we did and try to do better today. All right? So you and I are full of these would've, should'ves, and could could've's. And we often find those expressed in the second class condition of if. The second class conditional clauses in the Greek. In, in that if, and it's not true. But if it was, You could have done this. You would have done this. You should have done this. Jesus Christ, um, the one I think of right away is in John 8, where he was talking about his father and said, You're of your father the devil. And they got all mad and indignant and said, Well, Abraham's our father. And he says, Well, if Abraham was your father, you would love me. See? You wouldn't be trying to kill me. You're doing the deeds that Abraham didn't do. And so when he says, If Abraham was your father, then... You wouldn't have tried to kill me. So, usually when you have those ifs and they're not true in second class, then they're followed by, well, you would have done this. But since you're not, you didn't. <laughs> All right? That's a second class condition. The one <clears throat> that we're most accustomed to is number three, and that's maybe yes, maybe no. And... uh depending on which choice is made, then there are consequences. And this is truly the conditional aspect that we tend to think of anytime we read the word if. If-then sentences. If we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now that's potential. Because maybe I will, maybe I won't. I may choose... To be to harden my heart, I may choose to be a knucklehead a little bit longer. I may choose to, <clears throat> you know, convince myself that I'm okay, <laughs> or uh, I may just be a glutton for punishment and I want more divine discipline to be piled on. You know, I might say, yeah, I can take a little bit more. Whatever my stupid rebellion is all about, but when i'm tired of the divine discipline and when i'm tired of of um, those consequences and when i want to be back in fellowship and i confess my sins then he's faithful and just to forgive me my sins to cleanse me from all unrighteousness doesn't hold anything against me cleanses me from all of it i don't need a priest to, to you know give me some penance to do or any other such thing i'm cleansed from all unrighteousness i'm useful to the master prepared for any good work so if we confess our sins, that's a conditional third-class condition. maybe I will, maybe I won't. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light. know well, maybe I will, Maybe I won't, because you know what? I' got a volition, and I can walk in darkness.
1: <clears throat>
0: Number four is the most obscure, not used in very often, but it is, a, it is a wish. I wish it was. And if it was, I could do this, but I know it's not. I wish it was, but I know it's not. (laughs) All right? And uh, that one doesn't appear very often, but when it does, it's pretty clear that it's it's a wish, it's a desire. But the reality is... You know, for example, Christ wanted to gather Jerusalem. Felicially, they were ready to crucify him. See, God the Father desires for none to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Well, you know what? My Bible says that narrow is the gate, and few that find the way. Broad is the path that leads to destruction, and many there are that go unto. The fact of the matter is the majority of the human race is unredeemed. So the optative mood is <clears throat> is an interesting aspect there. Anyway, all of this is to say that what we're dealing with in this account, if you are the Son of God, is a first-class condition of if, and it is assumed to be true, and we could translate it as since. Since you are the Son of God. Since you have sovereign authority, use it. Since you can... Do it. Now, what do you think of that as a temptation? If you can do it, do it. Just because you can, does that mean you should? See? So, point one. The trap was for the Son of God to use his deity for selfish reasons. And to allow physical life needs to supersede spiritual life priorities. The trap was for the Son of God to use his deity for selfish reasons and to allow physical life needs to supersede spiritual life priorities. Wasn't time to eat yet. His fast was not yet over. This was the trap for the Son of God to use his deity. Now you and I already know that he never once uses his deity. That he lays aside his privileges when the word became flesh. That he humbled himself. And he never uses deity in his first Advent incarnation. Any any power that he exercises is the Holy Spirit's power. The trap was for the Son of God to use his deity for selfish reasons. You know, if if even one time, from the moment of his birth in the manger to his uh, work on the cross, if at any one time he used deity, then he took advantage of power that and and uh, methodology and means that you and I don't have available to us. See, I would love to, if I'm faced with a temptation or a test it would be really handy to go ahead and just tap into omniscience and figure out what the answer is and and then win every test I'm ever given. Or tap into omnipotence and just overpower whatever temptation I'm given. You know, just destroy it. Use a little omnipotence and, uh, you know, i got a, a, a people test going on, so I'll just, you know, turn them into a frog and be done with it. Right? Those are the kind of immature... Uh, juvenile things I would do if I had a little bit of omnipotence. You know, I could, I'd could, i be worse than, and I never saw it. I never saw that goofy Jim Carrey thing, you know, where he got God's power for 24 hours. You know what I'm talking about? I never saw that. I just saw commercials that talked about that movie, and I thought, well, what a interesting concept. What kind of juvenile things would I do if I had God's power for 24 hours? See, well, the fact of the matter is no human being can do any of that. And since Jesus Christ came to identify with human beings, to become our substitute, if he would have exercised deity at any point, where would the identification have been? How could he have taken our place? How could he have understood our weaknesses? So the fact of the matter is, is that he did not. He did not use deity at all. But the trap was for him to use deity for selfish reasons, to allow physical life needs to supersede spiritual life priorities. Jesus Christ was fasting in the will of God. Jesus Christ was engaging in spiritual combat. Jesus Christ was using the word of God to apply to particular tests. And we're going to see that. It doesn't have to be Deuteronomy. It could be any part of scripture. But you use scripture to answer your tests. So if you don't know scripture, how are you going to answer your tests? If you can't cite a verse, if you can't grab a passage and, and with your sword of the Spirit and kill that temptation, what are you going to do? Think, well, I kind of sort of know the Bible kind of talks about it somewhere. Is that the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God? I kind of sort of know the Bible talks about it somewhere. Where's a verse? Find a verse. Use that sword of the Spirit. All right. And we have the circumstances there. Well, that's the trap. The answer came from the word of God. And we will use that word here in a moment. All right. Actually, this is a good place to stop. We'll go ahead and end here. Close in prayer. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, I do thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for your faithfulness in our lives. We thank you. And we're, as we're learning from this example, and we're going to keep on learning from this example. We thank you, Father, that the Word of God is available for our, tempta- for our temptations and for our testings. I thank you, Father, that no temptation has overtaken us but such as is common to man. And since it's common to man, the Son of Man had victory in these things. And I want to thank you for that as well. Be with us as we go forth, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.